Welcome to the City Church Cardiff podcast. We're an Elim Pentecostal church in the center of Cardiff dedicated to bringing hope in the name of Jesus. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you're inspired and impacted by this message. Well, welcome to the 11th message in our sermon series, Just Like Jesus, where we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, arguably the most important speech of all time. And in the 10 messages so far, well, what have we done? We've been learning about what it looks like to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God, from Jesus himself. It's radical stuff. It's totally counter-cultural stuff. We've been in the beatitude, what a true Christian looks like, and the kind of uh, character that we are meant to display. We've looked at being salt and light, what a Christian is meant to do, the kind of influence we are to have on the world. And we've also looked in more recent times at the way a Christian is meant to live, as we've been in that section of the sermon in Matthew chapter 5 called the uh, Antitheses. Well, we come today to the last few verses of chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. And this is what many would regard as the summit of the Sermon on the Mount. And certainly few passages summarize the heart of Christian ethics as well as this. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, as we learn once again what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. As we've been doing throughout this sermon series. Today we're going to be breaking down these words part by part in order to get a better appreciation of the whole. And I want to start by looking at the very first parts of verses 43 and 44 where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Verses 43 to 48 complete the section of the Sermon on the Mount called the Antithesis, where Jesus is making six statements in the format of, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Jesus, as one endowed with authority, he is correcting the misapplication of the Old Testament law, and he's giving us an insight into what true righteousness really looks like. And specifically, this antithesis begins in verse 43 by saying, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the beginning of that quotation, love your neighbor, is a quote from the 
Old Testament. In fact, if you have a Bible with footnotes, then you'll be able to see there that this is um, from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. But you won't see the second part, which is hate your enemy. Why? Well, because there was nothing uh, in the Old Testament law, no explicit mention of hating the enemy or hating your enemy. Rather, hate your enemy is how love your neighbour came to be interpreted in some circles. And it was a perversion of the original intent of the law which misrepresented God's true heart. Now, it's worth taking a moment to define those words, neighbour and enemy. It's likely that the Jews at the time would have interpreted neighbour as a fellow Jew. They defined it very narrowly, a far cry from Jesus' answer to the question, who is my neighbour, which he gave in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where it was a very broad definition of who one's neighbour is. And next, Jesus uses the word enemy. But who is an enemy? As a Liverpool fan, are those jolly Manchester City fans my enemy? Or for the Welsh rugby fans here, is it the English who is your enemy? Well, no, although we must love each other, guys, okay? We must love each other. To the Jews, the enemies would have been the Romans, those foreigners who invaded their country, this is the kind of bias and prejudice that Jesus is seeking to challenge here. We don't tend to use the language of enemy today beyond the context of warfare. In our day, an enemy, it could be someone, even though we may not necessarily use the term, who holds a different political ideology, someone who has a different religious viewpoint, or someone who has a very different lifestyle to ourselves. But I guess what Jesus is talking about here is someone who has wronged us or the people that we care about, someone who is hostile to us, someone who has sought to hurt us or harm us, maybe someone who has different views to us, someone who wishes us trouble. It could be a co-worker who is constantly trying to undermine you, a neighbour who is disruptive or indeed a family member with whom you have a strained relationship. But then in verse 44, Jesus, he startles his listeners, for then he says something pretty radical, because he says this, we're going to have it up on the screen, there, he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Just think about that for a moment. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. According to Jesus, not only are we to love our neighbours, and again for Jesus, remember, that term neighbour is very broadly defined, but we're to even love our enemies. Loving our enemies. Now for many, this just seems too far. At best, we will tolerate our enemies, or maybe we won't retaliate. But probably hating our enemies is something that comes far more naturally. But Jesus says here that the correct way to respond to an enemy is not to hate him or to seek revenge against him, but to love him and to pray for him. I wonder, 
Is that how you treat your enemy? Now let's just ask the question, what did Jesus mean by love here when he's talking about loving our enemies? Well, the Greek word is agape, and we see a beautiful definition of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7. I'm going to read that right now, but read that through the lens of Jesus' commands to love our enemies. So here is a definition of this agape love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. That's the kind of love that Jesus is calling us to and he's calling us to even exercise this in relation to our enemies. Now, Jesus also tells us to pray for those who persecute us. What does he mean by this? Does this mean I've got to start praying for Manchester City? Those um, teams and fans who have been persecuting us, Liverpool supporters, all season long? Hopefully not. When Jesus says... Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Actually, people say that these two are parallel expressions. And if so, then praying for your enemy is a concrete way of expressing love towards them. Now, someone here might be saying, all right, pray for my enemy. I'll pray for them. I know what's, you know, the kind of thing that you read in one of the Psalms there. God, break their teeth. God, get them. <laughs> That's not the kind of prayer that God is um, wanting us to pray here. In fact, this reminds me of one time I was in a church service a long time ago, many years back. And uh, people were sharing testimonies. And, and a student got up and said, you know, I want to just um, share a story. I was really being bullied in school and the congregation went ah and there was kind of lots of sympathy there and uh, it was really difficult I was at a really low point but praise God that situation has totally turned around I'm not being bullied any longer and people started clapping and saying praise God and then the student what did she say directly after that do you know why because God broke his leg <laughs> and he's not bullying me any longer praise God it was an awkward moment <laughs> You don't pray, God gets them. You actually pray something much more positive. So what are we to pray for them then? Well, if they're not a Christian, maybe you pray for their salvation. That's the greatest blessing, right? Maybe actually when they make Jesus the Lord and Savior of their life, they'll not only see the error of their ways, but they'll repent of those things too. Or you ask God to heal any wounds or hurt they may be carrying, which may actually be the cause of some of the things that they did to you or said about you. You ask God to bring them to a place of conviction, but you bless them and you give them over into the hands of God. And do you know one of the things that I've realized as I've prayed for those who've wronged me or done bad things or said bad things, the more I pray for them, the more God helps me to love them. And it will be the same for you too. The more you 
pray for them, the more you will start to receive supernatural strength and grace and guidance to show kindness and compassion and indeed forgiveness. Through love, we can even turn our enemies into neighbours. You know, I think about the church in the early years, the early church, and they went through intense persecution. But despite that, they grew rapidly. And I actually think there's a link between the two because we know that the early church, they put this into practice. They prayed for those who were persecuting them. And there's one part of me, I know it's to do ultimately with the work of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet I just wonder that there is something as they lived out that gospel and in the power of the Holy Spirit, whether as they prayed for their persecutors, something happens and people saw. And that's one of the reasons why they grew so rapidly. So Jesus tells us that we are to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. But let me make a really important qualification here at this point. Loving our enemies or praying for those who persecute us does not mean condoning or accepting or ignoring wrong or abusive behaviour. It doesn't mean that if you're at risk of harm, you don't report it or seek to do anything about it. It's possible to show love to someone and still hold them accountable for their actions. And so Jesus here, when he's telling us to love our enemies, he's not condoning or overlooking abuse. He's not asking us to overlook crimes or fail to seek justice when necessary, not at all. In fact, true love often involves confronting sin and holding others ac accountable for their actions. And so we can show love and forgiveness to others, to our enemies, while still keeping in place healthy boundaries and while still pursuing justice. So when Jesus is telling us to love our enemies, he's teaching us a new way of responding to those who have wronged us. A new way that is rooted in love and forgiveness. He's showing that our response should not be driven by anger or hatred or bitterness or a desire for revenge. Rather, our response should be motivated by a desire to extend grace and forgiveness for that person's best ultimately, just as God has extended grace and forgiveness to us all. And here's one of the added byproducts in all of this that I've come to realize that as I've sought to put Jesus's teaching into practice here. By responding to mistreatments with love, by responding to an enemy with love, you actually prevent that person from having power over you. By responding in the way that Jesus is encouraging us to do here, you prevent that situation from the past from dominating your life. You know, while it might be out of your control when someone treats you unfairly, it's within your control as to how you respond. You can decide whether that problem is going to make you bitter or better. You have agency over your reaction to wrongdoing. And so when we, 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, with God's help, and we're going to get to that at the end because we need God's help for this. When we make the choice to love our enemies, we actually liberate ourselves from the prison of negative emotions and instead open up ourselves not only to God's love, but the flow of God's blessing in our lives, in us and through us. Conversely, when we hold on to anger or bitterness or a desire for revenge, it can weigh us down and prevents us from living in the freedom that Christ has won for us and that God wants us to walk in. And even worse than this, you know, when we don't forgive, when we don't love in this way, when we willingly hold on to unforgiveness, well, we unwittingly give permission for Satan to enter. And this is why one of the best ways to resist the devil as a Christian is to love your enemies and to put Jesus' words into practice here. Now, as we move on to verse 45, Jesus offers us a reason for why we should do this. Let's read. Remember, he says, love your enemy and hate your neighbor. But I tell you, you, you've heard it said, but I tell you, now, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. When I was little, people used to call me a mini version of my dad. They'd often say he's just like his dad because I do the things that my dad would do. Now, on the screen, the two photos there from the left, uh, that's me and my dad. And uh, there in the middle, that's me. Now, just in case you're wondering, that is a painted on beard. Just in case you're wondering if I got the kind of endowment of hair in my childhood and failed to kind of plan for adulthood there. That's me and my dad. And I would do everything my dad did. And uh, my dad loved meat and I loved meat. And people just need to see the way I ate meat and they'd know whose son I was. Now, fast forward some years. And this is now five years ago. The photo on the right, that's me and my daughter, Ariella. And I'm chewing meat. And what's she doing? She is chewing meat as well. Now, guys, just take that picture off now, okay? Don't look at it too much longer. There's only one reason to love your enemies, really. At least what Jesus is focusing on here. We do this because that's exactly what our heavenly dad would do. Our heavenly father. And when we love our enemies... We are showing the family resemblance, not eating meat in my case, but the family resemblance of demonstrating love. By showing love to those who've wronged us, to those who are rude to us or mean to us, we're emulating God's nature and we're showing ourselves to be his children. You know, love is at the centre of God's nature. And when we love our enemies, we're demonstrating that we are God's children. In contrast, if we're harboring hatred towards others, well, that's not like God. That's like, well, you know who? Less like Jesus and more like Satan. Loving our enemy, it's not the way we earn our way into God's family but it is one surefire way that we prove or show ourselves to be part of God's family. Jesus himself there, when he was being persecuted 
on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. Looking with eyes of love, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was praying for them. He was praying for God to bless them with forgiveness. And so, when it comes to being just like Jesus, I believe we are nowhere more like him than when we are doing this, than when we are showing grace and mercy in such a way. Grace, meaning getting what we don't deserve, and mercy, meaning not getting what we do deserve, showing grace and mercy to others. Jesus then gives two examples in the next part of verse 45, and so let's read it, which says, He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is highlighting here how God is good to all people, how God shows his love to all people, regardless of whether they are good or evil, just or unjust. The sun and rain, they are obviously both necessary for life. And God gives these gifts freely to all people, whether they deserve them or not, whether they believe in him or not, whether they praise him or whether they curse him. It doesn't matter whether they are good people or evil people, God gives them sunshine and light and rain, even if they don't acknowledge that it all belongs to him. It's an expression of his common grace and mercy and indeed his love. God loves those who hate him. In fact, he loved us even before we loved him. He loved us when we were far away from him. He loved us when we were rejecting him. That's the kind of love that God shows towards people. And that's why he wants us as his followers, to also demonstrate that same kind of love. And yes, even to those who hate us. Now notice the words in verse 45, which says, he causes the sun to rise and he sends the rain. He causes his sun to rise and he sends the rain. God takes the initiative and similarly, when it comes to loving our enemies, we are the ones who must take the initiative. Well, I'll love them when they say sorry to me. You know, that kind of attitude. No, that's not being advocated here. No, you make the choice. You be the peacemaker. Just like in that seventh beatitude, we covered it previously in this series, Matthew 5 and verse 9, about being a peacemaker, making peace. In fact, it's really interesting that the promise attached to that beatitude in Matthew 5, 19, blessed are the peacemakers. What is it? For they will be called children of God. There's the family resemblance thing going on again. So we take the initiative. We make the choice. And I want to highlight this because these days, love often gets defined solely as an emotion or as a feeling. But love in the Bible, that agape kind of love that we looked at in 1 Corinthians 13, it goes well beyond how you feel about something. It's a decision. It's a choice. It's a decisive act of the will. And sometimes it means choosing to do something for which you feel absolutely the opposite about. Something opposite to what you feel like doing. 
but still doing it because you know that it's right. This means it is the act of choosing to pray and choosing to love. Because you may well not feel like this, but you initiate it. You probably won't feel like loving your enemies. But the agape love of 1 Corinthians 13 is an act of the will, a selfless love, a sacrificial love, just like Jesus. And you don't feel your way into this. You think your way into this. You have to initiate this, even overcoming your own personal feelings. Now, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? This is what Jesus says next in verse 46. He says, are not even the tax collectors doing that? You see, in Jesus's day, tax collectors were known to be cheats and traitors. They took more than what the Roman government, for whom they were working, more than what the Roman government demanded. Why? Well, to line their own pockets. And so they were despised by many people, but at least they liked each other and they looked out for each other. And Jesus is actually using them as an example here to show that there's nothing special about loving someone who loves you or treating someone nicely who treats you nicely. Now, much of the world teaches us that we should only love those who love us. And in fact, well, those who are enemies, don't look out for them, maybe even take revenge against them. But as followers of Jesus, and this is why he's bringing these contrasts in here, as followers of Jesus, we're called to be different from the world around us. We're called to a higher standard of love and forgiveness. We're called to be peacemakers and to love even those who hate us or don't like us. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples here, you can do better. He's challenging us to go beyond the basic expectation of simply loving those who love us. He's encouraging his listeners to follow God's example of showing mercy and grace to all. Not just those who are easy to love. You know, there are some people who are easy to love, but there are some people who are hard to love. And actually, this is what Jesus is saying here. Show love, show grace, show mercy to these people too. And notice in verse 46, so we'll read it again. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? That word reward. Jesus talks about a reward quite a few times, in fact. We've already encountered that once so far in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 12, uh, where he says of those who are persecuted on his behalf, great is your reward in heaven. Later on in Matthew chapter 10, we'll read about Jesus talking about receiving a prophet's reward for welcoming a prophet or receiving a righteous person's reward for welcoming a righteous person or not losing our reward for offering a cup of water to one of the little ones. The risen Christ in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12, where he says, behold, I am coming soon and my reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Jesus talked about rewards a lot. Now, we don't have time to go into all of this, but the reward is not heaven. Heaven is totally free and it's unearned. Salvation 
which is what um, happens when we say yes to Jesus. We are saved. We cross over from death to life and we are given a, a future and a hope of heaven. Salvation is by grace through faith, by grace alone, through faith alone. It's not based on anything that we've done, but simply whether or not we believed the gospel and received Jesus Christ. So he's not talking about heaven there. When he talks about reward, he's talking about what will happen because every believer will face the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account to Jesus for how we've lived. And that is based on works. Reward is based on works, on whether or not we put the teaching of Jesus into practice. So let me just summarize what I've said. All Christians will go to heaven. No Christian, no genuine Christian will go to hell. But not all Christians will receive a reward at the judgment seat of Christ. But here Jesus is showing that there is a reward that is linked to loving our enemies and not simply loving our neighbours. And let's move on to verse 47, where he says, And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. So here now Jesus is talking about not simply our actions, but also our, our words and, and showing love through our words. The word pagan here, it's literally talking about Gentiles, those who, who don't know God. And so the question, I guess, that Jesus is, is really asking here is if they can do this without gods, then what can you do with gods? What are you doing more than what the world is doing? Remember, Jesus calls us to a higher standard. Because we know the one true and living God, it's possible for us to do better, to not only love our friends, but also love our enemies and to pray for them, to love the way that God loves. And this is really the crux of the whole thing here. Do you love unconditionally? just like Jesus, just the way God loves? Do you love without distinction, just like Jesus, just the way God loves? Do you love based on grace, just like Jesus, the way that God loves? Or do you love based on merit? You see, we don't have to earn God's love, it's based on grace. And we too can love others this way, because God first loved us in this way. And finally for today, let's look at verse 48, where Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if we thought that loving our enemies was difficult, well, what about this? Be perfect. Well, let me first say, this is not talking about sinless perfection. The Bible elsewhere assumes that we will continue to struggle with sin this side of heaven. Although equally, it also assumes that the more we walk with Jesus and go on in the Christian life, we move towards ever-increasing sanctification. The more we are being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, the more and more we are looking just like Jesus. But it's not assuming sinless perfection here. In fact, just a few verses later in Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us to pray, forgive us our sins. It's a daily prayer because he knows that daily we're going to need to come to God and confess our sins. Now commentators would say that the word perfect here 
It means mature or complete or whole. And so when Jesus is saying be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect, it's talking about the perfect way in which God, God loves. You could say that God loves completely or wholly. This is the way that God demonstrates love. Now, for the original audience, Jesus is saying you're not only to love your fellow Jewish neighbours, but also your enemy neighbours, the, the Romans here. And then for them and for us too, he's also saying this, loving not only our friends or family. Why? Because that's an incomplete love. But to love other human beings as well. To love even our enemies. He's talking about complete love or whole love just as our Heavenly Father is complete or whole in his love towards others, that selfless love, that sacrificial love that seeks the good of others above our own. Now, loving your enemy, loving those who hate you, loving those who hate God even, that's the kind of love that is mature or complete or perfect or fully developed. That's the kind of love that, God has because his love is unconditional. It's a remarkably high standard. And I believe that Jesus was fully aware of that. That as he's teaching on this, I think he deliberately is saying this because he's wanting to evoke an emotion within us, which is, how can I do this by myself? And you know what his answer would be? You're not meant to do this by yourself. He wants people to realize that they cannot attain God's standards of righteousness on their own, but they need the power of his spirit. And this is why some commentators even say, even though the, uh, the name of the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount, that actually this is Jesus's teaching on the Holy Spirit, because he's showing not only what life is like as a citizen of the kingdom, of heaven, but he's showing how we have to live that life by another power, by God's power, the power of his spirit. And I say this because in the natural, loving your enemies is near on impossible. It goes against our natural inclinations. Our, our natural tendencies are to retaliate, to fight back, to seek revenge. But Jesus is calling us to a higher standard. And we can only live this out by the power of his Holy Spirit. Loving our enemies is not natural. It's supernatural. And this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. Because we require God's help. It's not natural to love your enemies. But the Holy Spirit enables us to genuinely do this. And you know what? When you overwhelm your enemy with love, when you don't go for revenge, when you don't retaliate, you've truly crossed over from the natural to the supernatural. And when you can love them in this way, let me tell you this, you've climbed the summits of that mountain and you are the kind of person that looks just like Jesus. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. To find out more, visit our website at citychurchcardiff.com or find us on social media.